Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. Did you hear about the circus fire? No. It was intense. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actor Britt Marling that will help break the ice. Later, we'll speak with her about near-death experiences, emotional anthropology, and coral reefs. You know, the usual that you do. Typical actor chit-chat. Sure. Also, documentarian Clay Tweel tells us about Gleason, his new movie about a football star turned ALS survivor. And comedian Cristela Alonzo stops by to answer your etiquette questions and explain why her mom feared Girl Scouts. But first, <laughs> small talk. All week long, you've been hearing stories like this. President Obama is defending his decision to shorten the prison term for Army leaker Chelsea Manning. Ringling Brothers announces it will close after 146 years. Trump arrived in Washington, D.C. today to kick off inaugural festivities. Now for something you might not have heard, we're joined by Danielle Henderson. She is a writer for the upcoming Kerry Fukunaga show, Maniac. Danielle, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about squirrels. What okay. else is new? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Have you been hanging out with your pets? Naturally. Like, what's happening? Uh, there's actually a lot going on with squirrels, according to a gentleman named Chris Thomas. He's a hacker. His website is CyberSquirrel1. Okay. Uh, it is very detailed maps of the damage that squirrels are doing to our power grids across the country. Over 1,700 incidents in all that impact nearly 5 million people. So why, why is, he, is he just an exceedingly bored individual? <laughs> why would a hacker not yeah. be stealing money from a bank in the Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, uh, He's actually trying to make the larger point that we're all very worried about the vulnerability of our power grids mm. from other nations who might be wanting to attack us. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to put it in perspective, trying to make the point that we are under attack all the time and nothing bad has happened. So maybe the power grid isn't as easy to take down as we fear. Maybe it's not such a big deal, perhaps. It's possibly not such a big deal unless the squirrels get a little bit more clever <laughs> or possibly get more tools. That's true. I mean, if they start using tools, I think we're in for it. How do, how do we know that the, the squirrels themselves are not robots that have been sent over the border from, I don't know, our, our enemy Canada. I'm not willing to make that assumption. I mean, in, in these days, anything's possible. I think my, my sister's golden retriever, Murphy, has been on to this for a while. <laughs> I think so. He knows what's going on with the squirrels. <laughs> He's been trying the... to tell us. We just patted him on the head. It's... This is bigger than we made thought. Made him eat socks and rubber <laughs> toys. My cat is also in on it, but he refuses <laughs> oh my God. to provide any decent information. It's a conspiracy. Just vigilant. Stay vigilant. Daniel Henderson, thanks for the warning and thanks for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a wintry Midwestern town blanketed with flurries of frozen margarita. Wow. Mm. Great use of the snow machine. I think so. First, the history. <laughs> this week, back in 1849, <laughs> a quiet woman made a big noise in the world of medicine. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. By some accounts, the first woman to graduate from an American med school only got there by accident. Her name was Elizabeth Blackwell, and she felt obliged to go into medicine after a friend contracted uterine cancer. She told Elizabeth that she'd been embarrassed to discuss her illness with physicians, and that she'd have been better off with a, quote, lady doctor. So, encouraged by her progressive dad, Elizabeth applied to a bunch of med schools and got a bunch of rejections. One professor she met actually encouraged her to apply if she'd considered dressing up as a man. 
But finally, a small college called Geneva in upstate New York agreed to admit her on one condition. Every med student there, all of them men, had to okay the idea. The students gathered, a vote was held, and according to PBS NewsHour's Howard Markle, they figured the whole thing was a joke. So they voted unanimously to admit her and were shocked when she actually showed up. Even so, Elizabeth eventually earned the men's respect. It was the women in the little town who found her kind of weird. So for two years, she hid out in the cloistered halls of academia. I knew when I shut the great doors behind me that I shut out all unkindly criticism, she wrote. And I soon felt perfectly at home amongst my fellow students. Years after Elizabeth graduated, top of her class, she opened a medical school exclusively for women, as well as a clinic for the poor, and also an infirmary for women and children. By the way, she worked there alongside her sister, Emily, the third woman to ever earn a medical degree. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. We are speaking with Brian Butterfield. He is bar director at Kindred Fair. That's F-A-R-E. And it's a bar in Geneva, New York. Of course, the town where Elizabeth Blackwell earned her degree. Brian, you heard the history. What drink does that inspire you to make? So I've uh, come up with a uh, twist on a Martinez, which was actually the first version of the martini. Why a martini for Elizabeth Blackwell? Well, it just sort of worked. It, you'll, it's, okay. uh, yeah, you'll see. It <laughs> uh, works. Just like a doctor, I have to trust you. Absolutely. All right, what do we um, start with? So we're going to do two ounces of aged Jennifer. The Dutch predecessor to gin. Right, yeah, absolutely. It was sort of known for its medicinal qualities. Was it really? Uh, yeah. So when they were distilling it, it didn't taste very good. So they added in the juniper, which was thought to have uh, medicinal qualities. All right, yep. so what's next? Then we have three quarters of an ounce of sweet vermouth. Up to 3,000 years ago in China, they were adding roots and vegetables to wine, again, for the health benefits. Wow, it seems like the entire history of liquor is people trying to be healthy and accidentally getting (laughs) drunk. (laughs) Yeah, well, sounds good to me. So then we have a quarter of an ounce of house-made buckwheat cordial. Buckwheat cordial. Is is there something medicinal about that? There is, actually. So it's a rich source of protein, has a lot of fiber, (laughs) four B vitamins, and high content of minerals. So uh, basically, yeah. I can forego all meals. I could just subsist off your drink. Yeah, I stopped eating vegetables. Um, and then we're doing three drops of mole bitters. So kind of chocolatey. Yeah, a little bit. It sounds delicious. What is the name of this thing? So we're calling it Medicine and Morality, which was the title of one of Elizabeth Blackwell's books. And the best part of this drink is you don't need a prescription. That's seems, right. Except for maybe aspirin the next day. <laughs> yeah. Brian Butterfield, he is bar director at the restaurant Kindred Fair in Geneva, New York. And if you find yourself in that area, Brian says they'll be serving that cocktail all week. It is the healthiest drink ever. Oh, yeah. Next to NyQuil. I guess. Uh, And folks, you'll find all our recipes on our website, except for NyQuil. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made small talk, had a drink. Now, let's meet one of our guests of honor. Let's. And joining us now for a conversational feast, 
is Cristela Alonzo. She grew up in South Texas, got her start performing stand-up in Dallas. Then she struggled for years in the L.A. comedy scene before becoming the first Latina to write and star in her own TV show. It was called Cristela, and it aired on ABC. Her new comedy special launches this Tuesday on Netflix. It's called Lower Classy. And Cristela, welcome. <laughs> Did you love that name? I love that name. I do. <laughs> I do like it. Did the name come before the special or after you finished the special? You know, it came years ago. I had an idea for something, and I wanted to call it Lower Classy, and it never took off. Huh. And ah. then when I finished taping it, I, like, the special, I thought, <gasps> At last. this is what and I was I waiting <laughs> for. It's happened. I made this T-shirt with the marker. I can wear it now. <laughs> <laughs> Finally! Justice! So your comedy, it, it is often autobiographical, and the, the title yes. refers to your, your background. Yes. In the special, just to get an idea of your background, you describe your fourth grade fantasy <laughs> about yeah. the boy band New Kids on the Block. Yeah. You want to describe that for those who haven't seen this yet? It was a, my daydream, because I was in fourth grade, I was going to be the maid on their tour bus. The maid. And I was going to yeah. clean the bus so good that they were going to fall in love with me. As it happens. All the time. All the, like, I was writing Made in Manhattan years before it even existed. <laughs> but it's funny, the actual reason that I thought like that was because all the women in my neighborhood, that's what they did for a living. A lot of them worked yeah. at restaurants or they cleaned houses. I didn't understand until I was older. I'm like, you can do more than that. When was the moment you realized that, that you could do something? You know, some- my brother used to take me to the public library and drop me off. The entire day I would stay there and just read. I grew up in a border town in South Texas. And we were, yeah. you know, we were very isolated from everything. So it wasn't until I actually went to the library and read that I really, it really kind of hit me that I could do other things. So in this special, you you mention your TV show was about your particular experience. Yes. That it's not meant to address everything for all Latinos, but especially given the background you just told us about, there must be this kind of duality. This, this is an incredible opportunity to have such a show, but also just the weight of people's expectations to speak to all of them. Well, yeah, you know, it's weird. Because, I mean, the word Latino covers so many countries, which people forget. You know, it's mm. not like it's just like Latinolandia or something like that. <laughs> There's so many. And for me personally, I only grew up with Mexicans. And even then, mm. a specific demographic, like a specific regional Mexican culture. Sure. So it was very, it was a double-edged sword. I got the show and everybody's like, finally a Latina, like a Latino family, blah, blah, blah. And the moment they would see it, there were some people that if it didn't resonate with their own personal life, they were like, Oh, this is stupid. Yeah. Who lives like mm. this? You know, she's a liar. And I would, Maybe she's not Latino. <laughs> exactly. And I would always say, well, you don't see shows like Roseanne and think that every white mom is like that. No, sure. Yeah. I also wanted to show something very cultural for me where I was the youngest one in my family and I was the one in the family that always had to sacrifice her own mm. life to help out the family because I was the actor, I was the writer, and that yeah. wasn't a real job. <laughs> yeah. And every time they would come back, they would be like, oh, God, you failed. No, I didn't fail. You guys sent me back. Like, Yeah, you, like, you asked me to come back because I didn't have to punch a <laughs> clock every day at 9 a.m. Absolutely. I know a lot of Latinas that grew up like that. Mm. I was like a mom. I was helping mm. my sister raise her kids. I was a mom that didn't give birth to these kids, you know? And it's like, that's why when people ask me now, they're like, what are you having kids? I'm like, I've done that. (laughs) I've done that. I bought this Nintendo for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like you you weren't only kind of uh, maybe raising your sister's children. I mean, in a way, you talk in the special about raising your mother to a certain extent, or at least kind of teaching her 
what it means to to be an American because she's an immigrant yeah. and you're in your first generation. Well, you know, I mean, we all do that though, don't we? Like we all like isn't there a point like especially with technology, we get all this technology and then our sure. parents are like, "What is Facebook?" And then you start talking to them like they talk to you when they were teaching you basics like numbers and words and stuff. Yeah, they're like, "This well, is a VCR, mom." Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's true, but I didn't have to teach my mom about the Girl Scouts and I didn't have to like make her unafraid of them. Can you tell us that? It's, it's actually this this was actually a true story. My mom, she was trying to become a resident alien. That's what they call it. And uh, mm-hmm. it took a long time. And for a time, she was undocumented waiting to become a resident alien. So there was a time when she was very scared of getting deported. And because we live in a border town, the border patrol agents were everywhere. And my mom had never heard of the Girl Scouts. She had never seen them. And the moment she saw one, like she got so scared because she saw the green uniforms and she thought they were like border patrol agents in like training and you know and, like, border like, patrol and she youth. freaked out yeah yeah like like a kid unit like they had a kid unit like border patrol had a kid yeah. unit that they were trying to create oh. it's kind of hilarious in a way but also really interesting that people yeah. you know like she she associated the color and i never thought of it that way maybe this is a good time to get into this question this as we mentioned the show is mostly autobiographical but you launched the show right off the bat with a, a string of political jokes yes many of them aimed at donald trump and his proposed wall along the mexican border yes you taped this before the election yes now that that wall could be a reality how do you imagine that'll affect your set will you stay as autobiographical or or maybe get more political you know i think that because i talk about what my life is about i will immediately talk about what's the most pressing issue which right now is political so it'll end up being political Uh, but there is a way to do politics in a way that doesn't isolate everybody and I think mm. actually by being autobiographical, that's how you actually get to educate people the best. Mm. Because there is no point in name-calling people that don't agree with you, but it's actually hard for them to negate your experience mm. on what you've lived if you're being honest about it. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like right now we're talking about like a, like Obamacare, the ACA, you know, like, you know, which is the same thing, people. And, you know, it's <laughs> everybody brings out their own personal stories. And they humanize why they shouldn't repeal it, why they want to repeal it. You know what I mean? Like when you're honest about your life, that's when you kind of get people to get on your side, even though they might not initially agree with you. So I kind of go with that. Comedian Cristela Alonzo, her new stand-up special Lower Classy, launches this Tuesday on Netflix. Good news, she'll be back with us later in the show to answer your etiquette questions. And here's another reason to stick around. Right after the break, actor and writer Britt Marling of the sci-fi series The OA tells us what it's like to act through a broken nose. True. You know you want it. And the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we'll learn about the worst sandwich idea McDonald's ever devised. True. And in a few minutes, Booker Prize winning author Aravinda Diga introduces us to a man who's maybe a little too into the sport of cricket. <laughs> yes. But first, let's meet another guest of honor. All right. It's actor Britt Marling. She first attracted some attention when two movies she co-wrote and starred in premiered at Sundance in the same year. Those films, Sound of My Voice and Another Earth, were widely acclaimed by critics, and they both explored metaphysical themes. As does her latest project, the Netflix drama The OA. 
In it, Britt plays Prairie, a blind woman who goes missing for years, then reappears with her sight restored, harboring secrets. Mm. The multi-layered story also involves a mad scientist and near-death experiences. Wow. Britt co-wrote the show with her writing partner, Zalbot Monglich. He also directs it. The two met in college. And when we met, I asked Britt why they didn't just do something easy, like make a show about their lives. You know, it's funny that you should bring that up, the idea of telling a story of just, like, two people who meet at Georgetown and come out west and try to figure out how to become storytellers. Because Zal's mom is often like, why don't you guys tell that story? That's an interesting story. <laughs> I guess maybe we're, we're, we're both daydreamers, you know? It's mm. a sort of the things that stir your imagination are the strange juxtapositions, like mm-hmm. looking at near-death experiences and all that that inspires, which is so grand and such big cosmic questions about life and death and what's the nature of reality. And then juxtaposing that with a small Midwestern town and the, you know, the, the more mundane crises of teenage boys coming yeah, of age. And yeah. somehow those juxtapositions feel more exciting. It feels like something new com- can come mm-hmm. out of that, maybe. When you decided to embark on this idea, you I read you did a lot of research yeah. on on high schools and in the Midwest, but also on near-death experiences. Your character, Prairie, undergoes one early in the series. Was her story based on some of the real-life stories you read about or people you chatted with? You know, we I think we took what we took from all those stories that we'd read about in like Raymond Moody's book Life After Life or Sam Parnia's research was the idea that it was this realm of science in which it's all largely actually based on storytelling and just first person accounts of what they experienced. It's very hard to actually measure anything outside of the fact that somebody flatlines and then suddenly returns. And and yeah. I think it was the details of convergence, like everybody talks about a light at the end of the tunnel. Everyone talks about leaving the body and having this bird's eye point of view and the feeling of sort of pain and shame and everything falling away and a kind of transcendent, you know, state of bliss and then maybe facing the choice of whether or not to return to the body. Um, and so it felt like we could take these maybe hallmark moments of of this experience and then feel free to sort of in true um, science fiction fashion, use them as a springboard into mm. our own storytelling. This show is, I, I've been describing it to someone as like, it's capital D drama. Mm. There, there are moments where I had to look away. I had to hit pause, go like make a cup of tea, come back because I was feeling my heart beat fast because wow. moments were uh, were too tense. And mm. does, does it take a toll on you when you're, when you're acting, just having to operate at such an intense level for hours on end? <laughs> Definitely. I'm so glad to hear that you did that because I felt like I had to do that a lot on set. Like we would just do a take of a scene and it would be so intense and so overwhelming that I was just like, I've got to go find a tea and like a chocolate something at craft services because it's hard to – it was a really tough shoot. It was a long shoot and we used to look at the calendar for the days ahead and look for the light day where we could all just catch our breath and there was just never a light day. (laughs) Yeah, you also wrote this. Were you surprised to find that there wasn't any lightness in it? You know, I don't know. You know, I think maybe sometimes part of the story goes into dark places in order to ultimately touch something light. You know, it's kind of that description of the dark that's like the dazzling dark. And once you get through there, you by juxtaposition, you can see something brighter or lighter than you maybe would have been able to mm. see before. But in terms of performing, it... That was really hard, you know. I mean, at one point on set, 
I broke my nose wrestling with the dog, you know, in chapter one. Yeah, I insisted yeah. On, on doing that myself, which was maybe rather silly. And I had a flu on top of that. And so all the scenes we did in the attic, uh, I had a broken nose and had a flu. And I would just, like, do a monologue. And then I would, like, kind of turn around and just, like... This may be too much for radio. I would literally just no, turn around and my great. nose would just like drip into a bucket. And then I would like <laughs> do another take. And that when you're in set life, it feels like you're you've gone to war together. So it's all yeah. extreme and it all feels OK. But then once you are at the end of that experience, you really look back and you're like, how did we survive yeah. that? You know? You're like, Zal, next time sitcom. <laughs> sitcom. Half hour, one camera comedy. <laughs> my mother died in childbirth. It was just my father and I in a big, lonely house. They suffered from things then. Dreams. They had smells in them and sounds that were sharper than life. In one of them, I'm trapped in an aquarium, and I can't breathe. I can't get out. So we were talking about how intense it was to play this character, but you created her. You know, you wrote the tension into the script. How can that not be interpreted as some sort of masochism? You know, that might be an okay interpretation, honestly. I don't know. I mean, I think Mm. part of it is, I think when we're writing, we really have to divorce ourselves from the fact that I'm going to play the part. Because if you did, you wouldn't set up so many challenges for yourself. Or you might, you know, you've got to be true to the story and let the story tell itself and only face the fact that you're going to play that part at the end. Otherwise, you're vanity or who knows what else might sneak in there and muck it up. But I I think for me, I've always been attracted to acting because it's a kind of extreme emotional anthropology. It's like a license to explore many lives inside your life. And mm. I find that it makes me feel more connected to people. Like I, you know, more after empathetic. this, ex- more empathetic and, and, a better listener, I think. It's interesting. There may come a point in your acting career where you'll become a horrible listener because you'll be so <laughs> successful and you'll have so many people around you <laughs> My God. that you're just not you're not going to have to listen to anyone. No, anymore. never. That's that. I mean, I'd sooner <laughs> go give this all up and become like I'm interested in like the coral reefs right now. So I would just go take some scuba diving classes and go spend some time studying the reefs before they disappear. Before I'd let that happen. All right. Well, before you move to the beach, I need to ask you our show's <laughs> two standard questions. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked? Oh, wow. Uh, I guess one that's sort of funny is when people are like, what is the seed of the story? And I wish that there was an answer to that. Like, I wish you Mm. could go back in time and look and find the one thing that was it. But I I can never locate that thing. Like, I, I feel like it's more like a storm that happens and you you start so i always i struggle to answer that question yeah 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 you could maybe hire a um like a restaurant marketing firm (laughs) doesn't it strike you now that all restaurants have that story yeah they totally do one day i was just in the kitchen and i decided oh i got a little bit of this and a little bit of that and that's how these sandwiches were born yeah exactly yeah it's like no way dude you were a banker and you had a concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you hired a bunch of people and then you rolled yeah. it out. And Yeah, I should definitely find somebody. Maybe someone listening will reach out. Maybe somebody. Submit Brit's origin story for the OA. Please. Right now. We want to know. Um, 
All right, our second question is a request, which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be an interesting fact about you that you haven't shared in interviews before or kind of an interesting piece of trivia about the world. That's so lovely I mean, lovely I just watched hard. this whole show. I know your head is filled with trivia that most people don't know. Oh, my gosh. What? Um, what's something about me that maybe nobody knows? Um, maybe something that people don't know. I don't know if they know or not. Is that I'm like a real tomboy like my favorite thing mm. to do is to climb trees like that's mm. um, and there's the tree climbing scene in chapter one of the OA oh my god I didn't even think of that that wasn't in the right. script that was improvised Zal, Zal was just like that tree looks good get in it it was in the larger yeah. script Brett that we're all <laughs> putting under Britt Marling her new Netflix show is called The OA and Rico, I kind of feel bad that she lives in L.A. now because palm trees are really difficult to climb. Oh, no. There are no That's low branches true. for her. Also, cactuses would be a problem. <laughs> That's I, right. Their branches are too pointy and short. It's a terrible time for her. Folks, <laughs> we interviewed Britt a few years back about her movie Another Earth. If you want to hear that, head to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. There you will find all our past episodes for the price of free. Time to eavesdrop. One-time financial reporter Aravind Adiga won the Booker Prize for his debut novel, 2008's The White Tiger. He's one of the few Indian-born writers ever to do so. His new novel out this month is called Selection Day. Today we overhear him tell us about one of the characters who's as passionate about sports as Aravind. Hi, my name is Aravind Adiga. I'll be talking about a man named Tommy Sir, who is a cricketing coach and is trying to find the next great Indian cricketer. Cricket is often described as one of India's real religions, along with the cinema. Now, cricket is a game I love and know very well, but it does have a lot of technical terms. One of them is the word century, which is the equivalent of, say, a home run in baseball. And uh, anyone who plays cricket in India will know the names of Sachin Tendulkar and Don Bradman, who are the two greatest cricketers of all time, so the equivalent, say, of Joe DiMaggio and Babe Ruth. For nearly 40 years now, a tall, gray-haired man with small eyes had been seen at school compounds, gyms, members-only clubs, and any other place where boys in white uniforms had gathered. All through the cricketing season, either at the Bombay Sporting Club or at the Oval, Tommy Sir would be watching, hands on hips, brows corrugated, and yelling. Great shot, Duffer. When he was angry, his jaw shifted. He had broken many a young cricketer's heart with a sentence or two. Why couldn't you have scored a double century? Not good enough for this game, son. Try hockey instead. Once or twice in the season, he would take a batsman after a long and productive inning to the sugarcane stand. On such occasions, the boys stood together and watched with open mouths. Mogambo Kushua, he might say. Tommy Sir is pleased. Not his real name, obviously, because Narayan Rao Sadashiv Rao Kulkarni was too long, his friends called him Tommy, and because Tommy was too short, his protégés called him Tommy Sir. Like a Labrador that had been knighted by Her Majesty Queen of England. Ridiculous. He hated the name. Naturally, it stuck. On the day before his marriage in July 1974, 
He told his wife-to-be, who had arrived by overnight train from a village near Nashik, some salient points about himself. One, this is my salary statement. Read it and understand I am not a man meant to be rich in life. Two, I don't believe in God. Three, I don't watch movies, whether Hindi, Hollywood or Marathi. Four, likewise for live theatrical productions. Five, every Sunday when any type of cricket is being played in the city of Bombay, I will not be at home from breakfast to dinner. And six, before I die, I want to discover a new Vivian Richards, Hanif Mohammed, or Don Bradman. Think about these six points and marry me tomorrow if you want. Afterward, don't regret. I won't give divorce. Educated man, literary man, man of many illusions. His column on the traditions of Mumbai cricket was syndicated in 16 newspapers around India. 13 of his discoveries had made the city's Ranji Trophy team, including speed demon T.O. Shanoi, bowler of the fastest ball in the city's history. Plus, on his desktop computer were testimonials from nine current, six retired and two semi-retired Ranji Trophy players. Also, signed letters of appreciation from the cricket boards of 17 nations. And all these people, whether in Mumbai, Tamil Nadu or anywhere else, know that somewhere out there is the new Sachin Tendulkar, the new Don Bradman, the one boy he has still not found in 39 years. And Tommy Sir wants that boy more than he wants a glass of water on a hot day. Aravinda Diga, reading from his acclaimed new novel, Selection Day. That piece was edited for time. By the way, any sport with designated breaks for lunch and tea oh, yeah. gets high marks from me. I'm with you. Here, here. I would have lettered in that. All right, coming up, <laughs> comedian Cristela Alonso returns with the perfect etiquette advice to de-escalate a situation. There is no expiration date to get even. Or not, when the Dinner Party Download returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, documentarian Clay Tweel introduces us to a former football star dealing with ALS like a champion. But first, let's learn some manners mm-hmm. from stand-up comic Cristela Alonzo. We spoke to her earlier about her new stand-up special, Lower Classy, in which she talks about being a first-generation Mexican-American and about her youthful boy band fantasies. Which we say definitely qualifies her as an etiquette expert. Oh, yes. Uh, Cristela, our audience bombarded us with questions for you. Are you ready to answer them? Let's do it. Bring it on. Yeah, All right. Different. So this first question comes from Alicia in Bell Gardens, California, and she writes... <laughs> Christella, is it proper to dunk my pan dolce in my cafe when I'm invited to my rich Tia's house? Tia would be one's aunt. Pan dulce. Okay, thank you. Pan, pan dulce. dulce. Pan, pan dulce. Pan Can you dulce. dunk it? Yeah, you do. Actually, let me teach you a little bit. Pan dulce is usually not that sweet. And okay. sometimes after a day, it gets a little hard, and you okay. can actually dip it in hot coffee, and it's it's Jesus. It is like <laughs> hardcore heaven. Is it proper? But it's to not dunk? considered D class A to dunk it. I think it's part of the <laughs> no, subtext no, no, of the question here. No, 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 no. Actually, it is like that's when you know you're legit. If you dunk it in the coffee, that's when I know that you're like the real thing. <laughs> so, <see>. is it <laughs> proper to dunk the pan dulce and coffee at your fancy tia's house? Hell yeah! Yeah, because that's the way you got to do it. <laughs> it's improper not to. It, exactly. It's Sounds like. like- be yourself, girl. Come on now. Like okay. it's like when I go to Denny's and I 
order eggs. I always have to order tortillas, and I don't eat my eggs with forks. I scoop them up with a tortilla, like you know how I grew up. And people yep. will be like, "You don't use silverware." I'm like, "You know what? Screw silverware." <laughs> They're like, like even at the Michelin-starred restaurant Denny's, you don't even use a fork. <laughs> uh, all right, so there you go, Alicia. I think that answers your question. Dunk away. Wow. Here is something from Mark in Haddonfield, New Jersey, and Mark writes, "What is proper etiquette?" If someone insults you on social media in the middle of the night and you're not awake to read it, is there an acceptable amount of time to send a response? Well, you know, it's kind of like uh, like that episode of Seinfeld where George tries to f- think of like the perfect insult. <laughs> you know, I went to the jerk store and they ran out of you. Like, you know, and he, wait- he waits for the right <laughs> moment to say it and then it doesn't happen. Yes. I'm like, if you're mad, you can you can say something back to people whenever there is you know there is no expiration date to get even that's that's what i say like you know how people say forgive and forget my family forgot to forgive like we don't do it like whatever if you say something i don't care hey you know what that's your fault for assuming i'm not sleeping like i i got rested i thought about it i went to the committee we came up with this insult there you go two years later you're still insulting the person back i'm still working on getting my high school bully back (laughs) yeah aren't we all i mean isn't that why we're all here it's true Now talking on the radio. (laughs) Let's be honest. Lance Rollo, I'm going to come up with a comeback for you one of these days, man. Yes. Rico will let you know. Just just, just blurt it out, Rico. We'll roll with it. Um, All right. There you go, Mark. So it's our last question. It comes from Milagro in Clinton, Illinois. And the question is, how can I get a significant other while simultaneously not having any human interaction with anyone ever? So. So, this is a scientific question. Yeah, this is a this is, yeah maybe this is a physics question. Uh, Boy, can you help? How to get a significant other? Without... How can you how can you find love when you don't interact with humans? I think is the question. Yeah. Oh my God, Milagro! Did I write this question? I don't know because I have the, I have the same problem. No. no, I I'm a hermit. I stay at home. I'm not dating anybody. It's like how do I do it, Milagro? Because honestly. I don't want to do online dating. I already have low self-esteem. I don't want to get rejected by someone across the country. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I've got no. an idea. Come on our show. Yeah. And we just hook them up. Exactly. You don't need to online date, but we have, you know, Milagro's email address. We could we could make this Can happen. Can we do like a, you guys should actually do like a dinner party speed dating yeah. version. Dinner party dating. Yep. I think we just became a multi-million dollar concern. <laughs> Christelle, Christelle, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Comedian Christella Alonzo, we'd like to thank her for the business idea, and we look forward to playing Yenta to you all. But meanwhile, remember, nothing's as attractive as good manners. Oh so if you've got an etiquette question, send it to us, and we'll find a random celebrity to pose it to. Sure. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and hit contact. Now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And this week, Brendan, we are going to explore the genesis of a legendary restaurant that changed the mm-hmm. very concept of dining <laughs> and transformed the world's culinary landscape. You're, you're going to talk about McDonald's, Rico. Yes, I am. And it's not some secret Scottish eatery. No. It's the fast food place. That's right. This week, the Michael Keaton flick, The Founder, hits theaters. It is about Ray Kroc who came upon a Southern California hamburger joint begun by the McDonald brothers and turned it into an empire. Author Lisa Napoli explores that story and the story of Ray's tumultuous marriage in her new book, Ray and Joan. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to ask her about the history of a few of McDonald's iconic menu items, starting with the one just about everyone agrees is actually pretty damn good, 
the fries. But they were really damn good back when Dick and Mac, the brothers who started McDonald's, first started doing it. Mac McDonald apparently fancied himself sort of a chemist, mm. um, alchemist of the fry. And so he basically practiced with different types of potatoes, how to chop them, how to cure them. And he found that if he air-dried them in the desert air behind the store in San Bernardino that the starch broke down just enough so that when they fried it up, they were perfect. And people loved these fries. Ten cents a bag. They came from all over the place to get these fries that were so good. And so when you bought a McDonald's franchise in the early days, you got that formula. But what did you do if you were, say, in, you know, the middle of America and you didn't have desert air? That's what started to be a problem, is that you couldn't do what the brothers did, of course. And so that's where the birth of fast food really came up. You couldn't replicate the formula exactly from one place to another. So they had to come up with technological ways to freeze a French fry so that it was consistent across the board. And that's what people were buying with McDonald's in those days. You could go to a burger joint anywhere, but there was something more intoxicating and exciting about getting food that was like the food you got back home Mm. than now we're all hot for our food that's local. Let's talk about another food that became sort of cookie cutter across the board, the signature McDonald's hamburger. One of my favorite parts of the book is that Ray Kroc became obsessed with making these hamburgers look really good to the point where how much and how you should layer the condiments so that the ketchup wouldn't come out. (laughs) Ray Kroc was so fastidious. You know, not only was he a nut about the bathrooms being clean and he swept the parking lots, um, but he really wanted the food to look good. He wanted to make sure that there was a way to keep the patties centered on the bun perfectly and the squirt of ketchup and the pickle was perfectly placed. It was like a little sculpture. And that is part of the reason they did become so successful because there was so much schlocky food. You know, you could go into some hamburger joint on the roads and not know what you were getting. It might be lousy quality. It would look dirty. I mean, we take for granted that there's a certain level of sanitary nature to public eating facilities. But that wasn't the case back then. I mean, people were suspicious of it because they weren't used to eating out back then. And this is also at a time when the awareness of germs came to the forefront. People were aware that that might actually be bad for you to eat something that looks dirty. Exactly. I mean, isn't it mind-blowing to think that a paper cup, which is what Ray Kroc started selling before he got involved in all of this, a paper cup was revolutionary because it kept you from getting a disease from a public communal dipper when you went to drink water in the town square. I mean... (laughs) I'm thinking about, like, using the same ladle as everyone else at a McDonald's. (laughs) That's not a good idea. That would make everybody start eating at home. There you go. Um, Finally... I have to cop to this. I, I will occasionally seek out and get cravings for filet of fish. Tell us about the the genesis of the filet of fish, which was obviously not on the first menu. It wasn't. No. So there was a, a franchisee, an early franchisee in Ohio, and he noticed. On Fridays, his business dropped precipitously Uh because there was such a huge Catholic population and meat was forbidden on Fridays. And he thought, well, why don't I make a fish sandwich? And so he 
took it upon himself to experiment and came up with this filet of fish. And he went to Ray Kroc and Ray Kroc said, that's a lot of garbage. That's ridiculous. I don't want my restaurant stinking up with fish. This is terrible. Mm. But Ray um, was simultaneously developing what he called the hula burger, which was a slice of pineapple on a bun with uh, a slice of cheese. So he they basically had a fast food, you know, runoff. They he he said, OK, you can try to offer this for a while, but we'll also offer the hula burger and we'll see which wins. <laughs> he, he really thought that a pineapple, not even a burger, a slice of pineapple on a bun was going to beat a fish sandwich. I can't explain it, except he was a kooky guy. So is this during the explosion of, you know, tiki bars and things, I guess? <laughs> yeah, well, it was the 60s. So it is possible that he thought he was cashing in on a trend. It could be. And it was probably cheap, too. Right. You know, pineapple from a can. How expensive could it be? And the fish obviously cost more money. One of the reasons I can no longer indulge in a filet of fish every now and then is that the McDonald's across the street from our studio, which is also near where you live, closed recently. Yes. I've never even heard of that. McDonald's don't close. They open. (laughs) Where are we right now with the McDonald's Corporation? Is it doing well? For the first time ever, I feel like it's on shaky ground. Well, you know, if you follow the news, you would think that McDonald's is going to cease to exist. And yes, there were two that closed right down here in downtown Los Angeles, much to the consternation of our 85-year-old neighbor who ate breakfast there every single day. But that was more of a realist. That was a gentrification problem, not a Uh McDonald's problem. It was a raising rent. And businesses down here wanted to look sexier and hipper. And so they got the McDonald's out. But generally, you know, every time I read a news story, which is pretty much every day that McDonald's is cratering with its thousands of restaurants all around the world, the stock goes up. So go figure. So I'm not going to be without filet of fish anytime soon. I don't think you have to worry about a filet of fish emptiness in your soul. Lisa Napoli, her excellent new book about the history of McDonald's, about Ray Kroc, and about his wife Joan is called Ray and Joan. And Joan Kroc, of course, famously left much of her wealth to public radio. That's right. Thanks, Joan. And who knows? Maybe the heiress to Burger King or Taco Bell will leave the dinner party download some cash. Yeah. I'll switch from filet of fish to the whaler. I've got no shame. NFL star Steve Gleason was a safety for the New Orleans Saints, and he became a hero after blocking a punt in the team's first home game after Hurricane Katrina. But not long after retiring from the NFL, he was in the news again. It was a surprise appearance by Steve Gleason, his first appearance on camera since going public that he had been diagnosed with ALS. Obviously, I don't uh, how to move or talk quite the way I used to. Just six weeks after Gleason's diagnosis, his wife Michelle found out she was pregnant, so Gleason started taping video diaries for his future son. People say, oh, it's such a sad, tragic story. It is sad. And so they're right, but it's not all sad. And I think there's more in my future than in my past. I believe my future is bigger than my past. So that's uplifting. That's inspiring. After taping thousands of hours of footage, the couple called in filmmaker Clay Twill. He assembled it into a film called Gleason, and it's on the shortlist for a Best Documentary Oscar. When I met Clay, I asked, what about Steve made him think this doc could be more than a tragic tale about a chronic disease? 
I think one of the things that stood out to me is that Steve has this quality of what we sort of called like the warrior poet Mm. mentality, where he was a fierce competitor, somebody who defined himself by his physicality, but also had this existential questioning side of himself. Very cerebral. Yeah, very cerebral and very articulate in being able to voice what he's feeling as he's going through it. And so that that leads to a very complex person and, and a very interesting person to to follow. Steve and Michelle can light up a room and mm. there's a, this sort of energy and quality to them that I wanted to to have come across in the movie as well. So, you know, while things are, are certainly sad at times, I think why the movie works is that it also shows the light and it shows the love. Not to focus on the sad, but I think one of the other things that's remarkable about the documentary is that you really have some of the most graphic scenes I've ever witnessed on film about the toll a disease can take on someone. Tell me about the decision to keep those parts into the movie, and did you have to talk with Steve and Michelle, and did they have video power? It was something very early on that I talked to them about, and they said they wanted to show what the daily realities of living with ALS is like. Mm. And so that means getting pretty down and dirty sometimes. Mm-hmm. And The Theory of Everything, that movie that came out a couple years ago, is great. It's a fantastic movie, but it doesn't... Re- this is the movie about Stephen Hawking, who also has ALS. Correct, yeah. And and it's a beautiful movie, but it doesn't really show like how hard it would be to get him into bed at night. And, and they just sort of skip over that. So we wanted to be able to show that. We were showing them cuts to be able to make sure that we were going to test that line, but yeah. we would never cross over it. Well, other moments where they show their vulnerability, I think so. Michelle is this really powerful character. She's just had a newborn and her husband is dying. Uh, and she's dealing with both of them. There's a couple scenes where you're filming them fighting, you know, which mm-hmm. is, again, something you don't really see. And I'm wondering, were you in the room for that? And or even if you weren't, when you were looking at that footage, how are you, again, making that decision about this is heartrending and too intimate to put into the movie and the director who's like, I think this is, needs to be part of our story? Yeah, there are some intimate scenes. And, and the fighting to me was really getting at what I think is an often overlooked part of stories about illness, which is the caretaking side. It becomes not just about Steve, but about how this illness is affecting the whole family. There's this scene where they're in the bedroom and and having this fight, and Michelle at this point is just exhausted, and she doesn't have anything left to give. And Steve is sort of questioning why. He's extremely needy and kind of pestering her. I feel like you have no compassion towards me. Everything is rushed. You always have somewhere else to be. You finish my sentences. You rush any care that you give me. What can I do to be more important to you? It's a little hard to hear right there, but Michelle is just deflecting Steve and saying, I don't know. That's one of Michelle's favorite scenes in the movie. You know, like I, I showed it to her and I was certainly worried about the reaction, but she was like, no, that's that was my life. That's what it's like. And also, I think for the viewer, it does a service. You're like, you know, you can see a theory of everything, but yeah. it's just an abstraction. Yeah, there, there's something that uh, there's an analogy that uh, Michelle told me when we were filming that was, I think, really important. She said ALS is like this stair step type of disease. You lose a particular skill or motor function, and then you adapt your life. And you figure out how to 
to live you without... You like lose your... Yeah, your, yeah. Le- your ability to use your legs so you get in a wheelchair. Right. Yeah. You lose the ability to swallow so you get a feeding tube. Mm-hmm. And then you adapt to like life on how to, to eat and mm-hmm. maintain nutrition on a feeding tube. And then you lose something else mm-hmm. until you get to the, the end when there's really nothing left yeah. to lose. Did it take a toll on you going through all this tape? And I mean, even the moments that make it to film, I was sobbing yeah. <laughs> throughout the movie at different points for different reasons. I, yeah, I, I think it was a very emotional experience. And honestly, I, I had to sort of put my director hat on. And, you know, you, you try to capture that feeling the first time you watch something and then you can become numb to it. But you always want to be able to log that in your brain. Yeah. And I think it wasn't until we were in the sound mix for Sundance and there's a scene in the movie where Steve goes and he leads this chant right before a New Orleans Saints game. And the whole stadium is cheering for him. I was watching it play back sort of like on the big screen for the first time. And I just started crying, you know, and I'm like, it, it really the, the flood of everything that I had watched and experienced and getting to know these people like it all kind of came to a head there for me mm-hmm. and and that was uh it actually the movie is like more emotional for me now than when i was actually putting it together i think so there's a timeline throughout the movie where we check in on steve when he first is diagnosed and i think it takes us all the way up through 2015 how is steve now remarkably steve is doing very well the movie chronicles a lot of his loss of things mm-hmm. and where Steve is in the disease, he's fully progressed. He can only move his eyes. And so his life is quite regimented. He, you know, picks up his son from school almost every day. He still does lunch lady duties uh, <laughs> once a week at the school. And, you know, Steve's doing whatever he can to make the, the best use of his time. He's still kicking ass with his foundation and everything. <laughs> Wheel. His new documentary is called Gleason, and it's streaming on Amazon now. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week. This show wouldn't happen without our senior producer, Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and our engineer this week, Daniel Ramirez. And welcome to Nate Toby, our new boss. Hello. Nate, if there's something you didn't like in this week's show, it was totally Rico's idea. That is, that's not true. But Brendan does steal office supplies. Bon appetit. Bon <laughs> appetit. 